Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to Squatch Radio. My name is Connor Malley, and I'm your host. Before we get into today's show, I wanted to share a little bit about me and why Squatch Radio exists. So I've been a passionate Squatch player for almost 20 years, but what makes my path slightly different from your average Squatch player is I've also made Squatch my career. I've worn almost every hat and worked in almost every role in the industry. Some quick examples are I've gone from being a volunteer at a professional event to then becoming the CEO of the US Open. I've gone from trying to make Team USA to then becoming the director of all national teams while working at US Squash. And I've certainly gone from just playing on squash courts to focusing on how the sport can grow in the United States. What has been a big part of fueling my passion all these years are the fascinating, passionate, and dedicated people involved in our sport. So Squash Radio, well, that's just a way to try and help share those stories. We hope you like it, and if you're interested in growing the sport, get in touch. Or can you help share these stories? Comments are welcome on any social media or email us at squashradio at gmail.com. That's squashradio at gmail.com. Our biggest challenge is always trying to get the word out, so any help is so much appreciated. Without further ado, please enjoy the show. What about this? This call is being recorded. Today's guest is someone who barely needs any introduction for squash fans. We connect with a legend of the game, world champion, and former world number one, Terry Lanku, who was a fierce competitor, but did so with the highest level of sportsmanship. And how would someone achieve this? As you might guess, through balance, which Lanku mastered both on and off court. In this episode, we go back to Terry's roots of what it's like growing up on a tiny island in the Indian Ocean near Madagascar with a family that was half white French, half Chinese. He shares how his upbringing shaped his understanding and perspectives on the world and how he still embraces this every day, especially in his role as coach of the MIT program in Boston. We dive into another favorite topic of Terry's and that's his love of cars and driving. Thanks for tuning in and we hope you enjoy our conversation. Hey there, Squash Radio fans. Welcome back to another episode of Squash Radio. I'm your host, Connor O'Malley. And today, we are actually making Squash Radio history as we have our first interview with the world number one and world champion. Welcome to the show, Terry Linku. Merci. Merci, merci. <laughs> well, you're calling in today from Boston, and you are the head coach at MIT. And I'm not going to give the background on your story because that's actually a lot of what we're going to talk about today. And we're going to be talking about family talk in multiple ways and that, what that means, and car talk, because we've learned, or I've learned recently, that's something that Terry cares deeply about. But as a way to start, I've actually been asking this question, and it's been interesting, the answers I've been getting. So I'm going to start here. In a separate universe, where you could snap your fingers and maybe have taken a different path in your life, what do you think you might have done professionally? Okay, so right that, I think being a surfer. Yeah, professional surfer. Really? Yeah, I would have seen myself in the ocean with Mother Nature and doing something in the surfing world. Yeah. I love it. And how much experience do you have in surfing? <laughs> not much, not much, none, <laughs> to be honest. 
I grew up on a French island and I was being contact with the power of the ocean and the waves and the elements. And I used to do some, well, boogie boarding, so boogie boarding. I used to love it. That was my go-to hobby when I had a little time in between sessions and in between training during my week and the rest days. It was not really rest because it was very tiring too, but I love it. I used to just recharge and disconnect from the usual. I love it. One of the other things I was going to ask you, and I wonder if I have my answer to what I think your thing might be, but I'm very curious. So you were world number one world champion. And I want to ask you two different questions of what you think your on-court superpower was and what your off-court superpower was. Meaning like, what was your best thing that you brought to the court and what did you do off-court to kind of make that happen? Okay, I think globally on-court, I would say, well, qualities that I had was I was pretty athletic and mentally solid. Okay, I think I was balanced, well, in different ways in terms of quality. So I was not the fastest, not the most endurance, not the most skilled player, but I think I had a good package overall. Yeah. So like I said, nothing extraordinary, but just good enough to have a good mix. And then outside of the core, I always try to be just kind and nice and try to bring peace and good atmosphere, you know, amongst the people that I was touching and connecting with. So I actually had balance as your on-court superpower in my mind. And that was also, it was interesting because you said surfing. So I was like, oh my God, that would have totally played well. But what was interesting about watching you play was you really opened up my eyes to, back in the day, there was the open stance versus closed stance. And I was like, Terry doesn't care. He's just always balanced when he's hitting that shot. So it came through loud and clear just watching you. And I didn't realize that that might translate off court for you, like finding balance there. But you said kind and peace. And I can definitely see you giving that to others. But in terms of would you give that to yourself as well? Sometimes it's hard to be, we can be really harsh on ourselves, but externally kind. And so how did you reconcile that? Did you ever think about that? So I think I'm someone who likes to enjoy things. Yeah to enjoy the moment. And I think that was a really uh, powerful quality to have during my whole you know, childhood and career. It's trying to take the most out of any situation. So we'd be training, family time, my passion, like going to the beach, cinema, friends, always enjoying, you know, the max. And on call, pretty much the same. I was in the moment and try to give it all every single time. So maximum effort as well. So yeah, I would treat myself, of course. I think that was one of my quality. And sometimes it's good to be like that as opposed to, okay, I'm going to plan this and that. And you're always searching and looking for, you know, the next thing or not really enjoying what you have in the moment. And sometimes when we achieve that goal, which it sounds like you have, it becomes more routine and a practice. But what was something that kind of helped you? Was it a tip or an advice or a process you did in order to really strive towards that? What did you do to really embrace that? Like, how did you get there? I think everything is becoming from my childhood and the place where I grew up. That's part of what we're going to talk about today. So let's just rip that can open. And (laughs) I'm so glad I do these pre-interviews to really talk to you about what you want. And when you said, I really want to talk about my family, it meant so much to me. That was your first answer. So what do you want to talk about? And you're like, my family, my story. So it's always relevant, I think. But even in today's age of diversity, equity, and inclusion, when we can't ignore this anymore, and we really need to make this front and center. So I'm going to turn the mic over to you and just preface with like maybe giving some background about your family, your background, and you are 
the way you describe yourself, a balance of half white French and half Chinese. And I'm just going to turn it over to you. Yes, thanks for giving me this opportunity. I don't think I really uh, explained, you know, in depth or came into that field a lot over my career. Of course, when I was competing all over the world, depending where, there was a more emphasis on my Asian side. Like when I was competing in Hong Kong, all of a sudden I had all that crowd behind me because they knew I was half Chinese, you know, I told them and they were curious about that and had a huge fan over there. But anyway, that was just an example. So. I was born on a French tiny island in the Indian Ocean next to Madagascar by South Africa. So pretty remote and isolated place. I was born there in the south of the island. My dad, in fact, is someone from France, from the countryside south of France as well. But very rural family, working in the fields and in the farm. And so... He had a chance to go there to Reunion to do the national service, which was mandatory. And then he met my mom over there. My mom was born on an island, so speaking French, but my grandparents flew China during the regime, the communism kind of revolution and stuff. So they left China and ended up by boat. They ended up in Reunion Island. So I did grow up with both cultures and it was so important. I think for me, it just opened my eyes and everything was so beneficial, you know, to have that open mindset and open eyes and different lenses on, on, the, on my environment because it was not all black, all white. And so just to pause on that for a quick second, was that spoken about or was that not talked about, but it was just sort of lived? How open was the interracial talk? Like, how would that be at the family table or what were the discussions like? So there was no exception over there in Reunion. And the population is based of multiple, multiple people from different origin and places and races. How big was the island? So in terms of population, around 800,000 wow. inhabitants. But it's split between maybe 50% of people coming from India, 50% from people coming from China, then another 15 from Madagascar, 15 from Africa, and then from Europe, France. So... Of course, you had those groups, but there was a lot of interracial weddings and melting. It was a big melting pot. So, and was there overall general acceptance? Is that what you're saying? Yes, that was the way. It's called reunion, and it's funny because it is kind of a reunion of different races and cultures too. So yeah. I grew up in an environment at school. Everything was normal, you know, to have people like Café Olé, for example, you know, or just different colors and Chinese people and Indian and from different religion as well. Some Muslims people could live really well with Christian and again with Jewish people. And so all the temples, the church, everything was close by and there was a lot of tolerance, a lot of respect. I grew up in that environment to be respectful to people, to understand differences and to include everyone. And that's what I was saying, try to make everything work around me, to hear people, to listen to other voices, to be inclusive. And I was living on site where my dad used to work. So he used to be in charge of a center for kids with social difficulties, with parents divorced, or alcoholic, or, you know, kids that were... What was his role there? He was just in charge. He was directing the center, and uh, there was a lot of kids, same thing, different horizons, but with a lot of uh, struggles. And because he was also trying to integrate everything and make a better life for those kids, 
you really put the emphasis on the sports. Why was that, do you think? Yeah, my dad always loved sports and always believed that it was healthy for you and it was a good outlet and it was just a good thing to have in life. He loved biking. He used to ride on the road and bike for hours. Rugby, because as a good Frenchman, he played rugby. So I think he really sort of inject that passion of, and love of sports to those kids and then to me, to my family. I grew up with those kids because I was living on site, remember? So I used to do judo with them. I used to bike. I used to lots of different activities together. And of course, we were different, of course. So, but I think that really shaped my views, you know, of other people with differences in life. Yeah. I mean, that really sounds amazing, man. That is so, I don't know, beautiful. Now, I'm curious there, how long did you live there? So I lived there. I left when I was 17 years old. And where did you move to? I moved to Paris, yeah. And had you gone to visit either China or France prior to moving? Yeah, yeah. So that's the thing. On my mom's side, and that I forgot to tell you, that's pretty amazing as well. Of course, back in the days when you're arriving from China, you try to like make it work, make a living. So my grandparents opened up a little store, a very small grocery store in the middle of the sugarcane fields. All right. And they had 16 kids. Wow. Okay. Yeah. One six. So they lived in poverty. They tried to make it work. My mom, she's number three in the ladder. <laughs> Who was above her in terms of like boy, girl? Yeah, older brother, older sister. Yeah. So some of them, unfortunately, died very early, like as a baby or very young because of sickness. But anyway, I saw that part of, you know, the family, the struggle, you know, aunts and uncles that some of them put it off, you know, some of them made it work with hard work and with opportunities. Like my mom, she was a teacher. Okay. She became a teacher, but some other ones, you know, became doctors. So that was awesome. But I had uncles and aunts that were mentally uh, disabled, handicapped and going there, visiting everyone and seeing that it does something to you. I can guess what I think it does, but would you mind talking about what that impact that had on you and the, how that changed over the years? Yeah, I think that gave me a sense of sometimes injustice, okay? Or was I going, that's not fair, why? Or why my mom lost a couple of siblings from sickness? Why does she have to deal and take care also of handicapped people or mentally uh, ill people? And that really opened my eyes in terms of, okay, I'm lucky enough to be healthy, normal, have everything that I need. My family was just an average family, nothing fancy, fancy. So I grew up in that environment, but trying to make it work as well. Through my mom's eyes, I could see that she really had to fight hard, you know, to try to go to school and walking to school or getting into a truck, like a sugarcane truck to go down to the little town. And then there was a lot of hardship, yeah, hard life and to become, you know, and to try to make it work. So I think that she gave me the motivation, the determination, the will, the desire to win and to do my best. And my dad gave me the passion and the love for the sport. And I think that was a good combo. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, when you move to France, I can just see the sort of juxtaposition of a different environment. And actually, I have to say, from the outside, France is a very egalitarian society. But that doesn't mean there isn't areas where that doesn't hold true, right? But compared to other places, there's, I think, a high level of tolerance, at least from the outside. So I'd love to hear 
where you how that contrast was going from the island to France and your transition there. Was that easy? Was that hard? How was that? I think my coaches, they warned me because they were in France and we were actually training by fax. For all the kids listening out there, do you want to explain what a fax? I'm just kidding. People can Google what a fax machine is. But yes. That's a reality, you know, we were living thousands of miles away. They would send me the program or the sessions that I would do it by myself. And my brother was here to help me a little bit. But anyway, they warned me and they said like, okay, when you're going to move to France, to the actual country, you might see a lot of differences and out of your bubble, people might judge you or people might call you names. I looked a little bit Chinese, of course, and they were like, oh, you'll see. So I had that in mind, but honestly, I was not too often affected by that. But I could tell that there was more tension in general between certain groups. What did that tension look like and how did you note it? I mean, I can understand that you could see it was there, but what did that look like either perceived or subtle? Like, how was that? Yeah, I think in general, people of color, the black people coming from Africa, but like the French colony or people coming from French islands as well, but of colors or people from North Africa, because there was that big wave of immigration as well from Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia. All of those people came to help us during the war. And then you have that other generation coming up and then that didn't melt well that didn't really bond well with everyone else so i could see i could witness some tension some intolerance not similar to here in the us but you can tell there were different levels of acceptation and different levels of opportunities jobs yeah and a little bit to use a word you used just recently injustice is that what you're also seeing yeah 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 injustice yeah. and people like struggling as well and do bad things and um I think treated in different levels too, you know. So your move to France, what sparked your move from the island to the mainland? So I think part of my success is that I think I made the right choices to leave the island. And I was very proud to be from Reunion, very proud to represent that. There was a lot of other athletes or champions like in the juniors that tried the adventure on like moving to France and being closer to Europe and closer to the center of the world. A lot of them didn't make it. A lot of them did not deal with the change of culture or change of weather, temperature, well, way of life. It was so hard. I was in a little bubble in Reunion, okay? I was in a little cocoon. My family, you know, I had everything. It was very protected. The squash court was hundred yards away from my house, very practical. I would go anywhere with my little bike, my motorbike, easy, okay? Always nice and sunny. So coming back there, that was a big, big decision. I had a super hard time because, of course, you're out of your comfort zone. You're with different people. I used to live just a little bit outside Paris, very rainy, very <laughs> gray in the winter. I was in the Institute, the French Institute of Sport. And I stayed in a room with two other mates. They were running tracks and doing, um, they were doing long jumps. So not easy again, coming from that island to, okay, now I'm going to share that room. It was tough. It was tough to go and to train and take the subway, take the bus to do one session, two sessions a day, come back. Then, of course, I was in that special arrangement for studies too. So I was kind of at the university and then doing my sessions on the side. So everything was well customized for athletes. Does that mean you were officially part of Team France? 
No, that was another step. But was that your goal? Was that what you were aiming towards to get on the national team? I was aiming to do the best I could be and to, yeah, to play for France. Yeah, I moved, I was 17 and I think my first selection, I think I was 19 years old. Let's sort of open this up now to essentially going from one family to another using sport as the throughput here, Team France and Team Technofiber. Because I love the story of Technofiber. It's just such a fabulous company. And it sounds like you were really there at the beginning stages. Is that accurate? It is accurate. Do you want to tell a little bit of the kind of 90-second overview of that story and we can go into some more detail? Yeah, yeah. So Technofiber is a French company, a very well-established and known for their strings at the beginning uh, in tennis. And then they try to develop that part of the business in squash. So first of all, the strings were really good and got a really good reputation in squash with the green Technifiber, the 305, 1.2 uh, gauge, multi-filament. So that was, I think, all the top players, you know, would use the brand. I was using different brands before that. And then they just wanted to create uh, like squash rackets. And then I think I had different proposition at the time. And I remember it was, in the end, it was between two brands. I don't know if I can say it. It was between Dunlop and Technifiber. And at that time, I think I just broke into the top 10. What year was this? It was 2000. Yeah, year 2000. So I was seduced by the fact that it was a French company, the brand they were launching and trying to create an image, the sport, uh, try to exist and i was so happy to be the ambassador and the guy on the posters you know well i did like the denim brackets but back in the days they had already like a big team of great players and i felt like i wanted to be just the one what you said before about you felt good about the choices you make and i honestly that's probably one of the best choices you've ever made because think of the career to date and the the role that you've had in helping to shape them and i don't know all of the details but certainly i remember watching you play and it was hard to separate you from Team Technofiber. You guys were just one of the same. And I loved the strings too. That's what I was playing with. Because I was coaching at the time. I had to use Ashaway to coach with, but I was then using Technofiber because I didn't have much money then. So the Technofiber was just a little bit higher, more expensive, and I didn't want to waste it on the lesson. So I had to have two strings. But yeah, those are, and still are my string of choice. But they've really expanded into, and I think that they've really embraced this fusion of just being early, being a brand, delivering great products. And it seems like a magnet to me. It really just has done something. And to kind of spell out this success story is they were, I don't know if acquired is the right word, but they partnered with Lacoste now. It's just, I mean, talk about a success story and squash being a part of that, I think. Not the main part, but certainly yeah. a beneficiary of that story. So it sounds like you were also involved, not just being a player, but also on the company side. And so talk about your role of helping them navigate the squash world. So, yeah, during all my careers, they were like family, of course. There was that arrangement, that business arrangement, find the contracts. So it was always smooth and they were always very supportive. I would give it back always, exhibition, you know, signature and stuff. So it was a great relationship. Honestly, it wasn't work with them. It was just awesome. And then the, the rackets, honestly, I couldn't break the rackets. I could not. They were just so solid. I would just get rid of them because I had to change. But yeah, anyway, I would go to Roland Garros, the French Open tennis. I would have the special seats, blah, blah, blah. That was amazing with those guys. And still, it is a family because right after I finished my career, I was more of a coach and ambassador and try to help them to recruit international talents and then U.S. talents. 
and try to like advise them. But still now, you know, I'm less involved, but I'm still representing the brand. I still he means that literally because you can't see this, but he's wearing a Technofiber sweatshirt. So <laughs> I do. Yeah, it's like I have a tattoo, you know. I could never change. I could never change. So they really helped me to reach my full potential as well because of the product. I was a little picky too, right? If you talk to guys on the inside, we had some tough uh, moments with, okay, uh, that record, are you sure it's the same from one model to the other one? They were like, yeah, definitely. You know, from factory, it's the same specs, same like balance, everything is, well, I'm like, no, I'm like, I can feel it. Because with the change of cosmetic and paint, sometimes... You're actually correct. And when I was, my stint as a teaching professional, I was with Dunlop and I wasn't quite as satisfied too. I felt like a number versus part of the team. And so I went to Wilson and I got to go into their headquarters in Chicago. And then they had the tour room. So you go in, it's a pretty small room, but there's probably, oh gosh, 2,000, maybe 3,000 rackets in there, which is what for all the pros. And they're like, this is the Federa pile. And they're like, yeah, because the Delta... The accepted tolerance at the factory level is plus or minus five grams or whatever it is. But that's a big difference, as you were noting. And same thing with the bumper. I would shave off the bumper or that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I don't think you were crazy at all, man. You were probably right. Sometimes, you know, from one year to the other, the material would change a little bit. You know, the raw material, the composite or the graphite, or it's a little different. And then, oh, my gosh, that was a <laughs> Sometimes it was a nightmare. Anyway, that was the little thing, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's also sourcing, right? If they change literally, and we would get into these nuances, especially you remember Flanagan, we would talk about you a lot because he's also loves French, but we would get custom rackets from Wilson and we'd put the Windy City Open on it and it would be different weight because of that extra cosmetics. So yeah, you're hundred percent right. And I've had some interactions with the Technofiber team and I really, I mean it because I've interacted with a lot of different businesses and people. You're hundred percent right. They're family in terms of how they even treat others. And it really is, it just rings true. And so. Well, for the little story, if you want one story as well with Technifiber, one of them is that I was invited past winter and that was during the tournament of champion. And then I was not supposed to go there, blah, blah, blah. So Amanda was playing her first round. I was supposed to see her only for the second round because I was like, okay, you should be okay for the first round. So I'm going to be there from the second round onwards. And then Technifiber, like, called me and said, oh, we're doing that event with Lacoste for all the top players and our clients and our distributors and everything. Do you mind coming as well? And we can have you as well, like for the heritage and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, okay. And man, the timing was the worst one because now it was in the same time as Amanda's first round. So now I was stuck. And that event occurs like once every, you know. So I was like, okay, for once, Let's do the Technifiber one. Hopefully, Amanda's going to go through and then everyone's going to be happy. But then <laughs> nothing really happened the way it's supposed to. So unfortunately, Amanda, back from injuries and stuff, was a little surprised in the first round. Lost in five. My gosh, I felt so bad. And I was kind of a few blocks away at that event and drinking champagne and blah, blah, blah. And the poor Amanda, I let her down. And I really am so sorry. Are you guys still talking? <laughs> yes. <laughs> we actually just had Amanda Sobe, world number seven American, on the podcast recently. And we were talking about you as part of Team Sobe. And talk a little bit about your perspective and your relationship with Amanda. Well, uh, it's, I've got a great relationship with her, uh, an amazing time with her. What a journey since junior year at Harvard, all right? I think that's when we started. And then 
of course, on the tour. She's in Philadelphia now, and she's going to come up here to Boston to train for a week in two, three weeks. So we maintain the relationship, even if she's a bit more away and distant. But I'm always in her corner and trying to help her whenever she needs it. What do you think Amanda's superpower is on court? Superpowers, power. <laughs> yeah, her presence, her physical presence is, I think, is a huge one. The weight of ball, the way the ball can sit and die, okay, or kills, a dying length, a volleying game. She's a lefty, so she has a nice little flicks as well, you know, from the foreign. She's got more variation. She needs to always work on the movement and agility and stuff. That's kind of where she's not as strong, but overall a big, big mentor as well. And without giving away any trade secrets here, but oftentimes we coach people differently, right? Not every player needs the same thing. In terms of Amanda's success, where are you guys trying to put her on track for ultimate success? So I think when we started, she had an experience in a junior. She achieved world champion, right? She was very already experienced. and At a young age, too. At a young age, too, yeah. So she was really a phenomenon and getting late into the game as well. So the talent was there, the hard work. Then it was a question of bring a bit more different aspect and dimension to her game, try to support her mentally and psychologically as well. She didn't have it easy over the years and even still now little ups and downs with the past with the family so anyways i think she's getting a lot of support and she has that's why she has that team that is so important to her she likes being surrounded and supported and she needs that she really needs that some people are a little different you know a bit more independent or a bit more okay fine i know what i'm doing she's like that but she still needs i think a certain support in different aspects of the performance and first of all coaching a female is different from coaching a male athlete because i had to deal also with a couple of guys too which, which is a little different but with amanda a lot of compassion a lot of always trying to adjust and try to find the limits but always being positive and optimistic pushing the limits, but also understanding the whole. And that's important. I think as a coach is trying to understand the whole situation and on a daily basis that is changing too. So it, it's feeling, uh, try to feel, try to connect really with what is that person's going through, what, what are the struggles, what is physically wrong, what's it's, uh, yeah. We're going to take a quick break to hear a word about our sponsor. So Lee, we want to thank you for being our first sponsor on Squash Radio. And just want to say you've sponsored other avenues, but Squash is always where your heart's at. What does it mean to you to be sponsoring Squash? I, I think there's just a, a lot of interesting people in the sports. I've attended junior tournaments. I've been to professional tournaments. And you can always get into some engaging conversations. And I think Squash Radio is an avenue of bringing those people to the forefront. And I'm sure a lot of people would like to listen to them. And sponsoring this, we're just uh, facilitating that. I think you nailed it. Is there anything else you, you might want to add? But I think you, you nailed it. That is, <laughs> that's exactly what I think. Because <laughs> I'm in, like, with Hope. I've met Hope so many times and they've got into a little bit of conversation. But... Listening to that conversation you had with her, just, she's just a squash through and through person. And I don't know how many listeners you get, but it doesn't matter. It, it's the fact that 
people can now relate to Hope as this person. Hopefully they're going to do that with me. I'm sure, because I'm quite a private person, I'm not, I've never been a person who hung around the squash circle of people, but when I do, I've got some very good friends and they will probably know me, but there's a lot of people who saw me at junior tournaments and a lot of my juniors were top players in the country, but uh, yeah, I, I think it's a great way of bringing some of the personalities from squash. That was Lee Witham, who is the CEO of Pro Sports LED, the sponsor of this podcast. You probably don't even think about lighting, and neither did we until we started talking to Lee. And now we totally get the problem that Pro Sport LED is fixing. And we know maybe that's not you now, or maybe not you ever. But if you know anyone who might be interested or need to improve their lighting for squash, tennis, soccer, you name it, it would mean a lot to us and our sponsor if you'd put us in touch. You can go to squashradio.com LED or email squashradio at gmail.com. That's squashradio at gmail.com. Thank you again and back to our show. Speaking of transitioning from being a top player, world number one, to then coaching, how was that transition for you? What was a natural transition? And then what was a struggle that you didn't think would actually be harder than it was? I think when I was active and a player, I love competing. I love competing. And that little stress, that little, you know, I loved it because I knew how to deal with it, right? When you're a coach, you're stressing for someone else. So first of all, you have to not show the stress, which is the thing that you cannot control too much too. So you're not going to control the outcome. You're not the one playing. So it's different, very different skills. But I think I had great role models. My two coaches were amazing people, persons, mentors. And I think that's super important. You want someone who has a little knowledge? Yes. Experience? Yes really big in research and scientific approach and always like try to dig things and, and do things better and more accurate, more scientific. So the team, you know, we were three and that team, I think, brought our signature and our style. Like you said, the open stance, the movement, the French movement, blah, 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 our, our own style. We didn't want to copy anyone else, but they were good people. Those guys were, they were in the best interest for me. They always try to like, keep me calm always to like explain me what was going on or explain me all the sessions and what I had to do. And I think that that was really important too. There was always like a, a meaning, a reason why I would do certain things and why it could work out. Let's give a quick shout out to those people and the role that they played for you. Yeah, of course. So I had since the age of 14, those two guys, so Paul Siberas and Frank Carlino, play a massive role. Like I said, there could be big brothers like another dad that's how big the impact is just mentors and different things in life and thanks to them i think and well to my parents as well my education but that's i think i'm pretty stable now i think that's important to have those skills as well to connect with your player and feel and understand and listen and come up with something just something spot on now did your keen understanding of the coaching styles that was your mentors and your coaches had on you. Were you aware of that at the time or since you transitioned that you're kind of looking at it retrospectively and gleaning lessons? Yeah. So, and during that time I could see those qualities and I would tell them, especially one of them, 
I'm like, oh, I cannot do that, guys. I will not be able to do what you're doing now. Because the guy was always with this little piece of paper, like writing notes, always, always analyzing. Back in the days, we didn't have that much videos and footage that we have now, of course. But all that effort, the work behind the scenes. And I was like, man, that's too hard. <laughs> that's too hard. I cannot see myself being like a coach and doing what you're doing. Because it's a lot of uh, things you need to, uh, yeah, you need to open your eyes and find new ways and be creative. But anyway, here I am and in that role. And in the end, I had to train myself to be a coach. I had to, again, go back to reading books. And I think by doing you're getting better. And of course, you know, between my first year and now, it's just way different. Well, bringing this full circle back to MIT, when you've been there, I apologize, how long have you been there now? Is it five years? Yes, this is year seven. Year seven. So almost coming on to two full cycles of you building the team that you want. And obviously, you can see the success since you've been there, just how much that they've improved. But what are you aiming for, like the program itself? Where are you trying to take this? If you are, pick whatever number of years out and you're looking back, what do you want to have had an imprint on? Yeah, that, that's a good question. So with the mighty, the reason I'm here in the US in the first place, the reason I, was, I came here was to, I think, find a new way to explore, to try something else. I didn't want to stay in France. I wanted to turn the page for me, for my future, but for my family as well. So that was my main goal. Okay, so that I came here a couple of years. I did some coaching, like private coaching, and then MIT. So I've been here eight, nine years, okay? So I had no idea about college squash, honestly. Now, before coming here, yes, I knew Harvard. I knew we used to play the U.S. Open, and we used to, uh, yeah, go to the Harvard facilities and stuff. If you don't know about that world, you have no idea. And, and by the way, Terry... I grew up in America. Well, I didn't. I grew up in Europe, but I moved to the States. But when I was playing boarding school squash, I had no clue about college squash. I had no clue about pro squash. So don't feel bad at all if you don't know about it. But now you've been in there. What do you think? Yeah, so that's the thing. I had an opportunity at MIT. So I went there. So the little story is that Mike Ware, the Harvard, asked me to do like a little presentation, lecture, whatever you want to call it, like demonstration or exhibition. So I did a little thing because... He was organizing a day of coaching for all the people around, you know, like coaches and instructors around from different clubs. I'm like, yeah, okay, I can do that. And then there was a guy in a crowd. He was the assistant coach at MIT and he came and see me afterwards. And he's like, oh, would you like to do the same thing at MIT? I'm like, okay, where's that? Okay, why not? <laughs> so I went there. Then the head coach was, oh, that was amazing. We recorded a lot of stuff. And would you be interested in replacing me? Because I'm leaving. I'm like, I don't know. I don't know this world. I don't really know. I don't. He's like, oh, okay, let me know. Then if you I'm going to be leaving, but it's just a part-time job. I'm like, oh, really? So anyway, it wasn't that attractive, to be honest with you. And then, you know what? I think they really enjoyed the alum. They really enjoyed the video, that little exhibition I did at MIT. And they really pushed, I think, for me to get it. So my vision was, okay, that program is kind of going down because a lack of attraction and the program was not really... I think the other part there, just for context, is also there are more programs coming in. So it might have stayed the same level, but more competition was coming in. No, no, you're right. You're right. It's that, yes, because MIT was 
part of the pioneer, you know, the teams, they were competing in the 30s. And at one time, they were <laughs> the fourth of five, but there were not many teams. Okay, but you're right. Over the years, more and more teams with budget and with varsity programs are creating new programs. Well, Columbia, we know Rochester, we know well, Trinity, of course, and all those guys, you know. Old UVA. UVA and then plus, 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 and massive programs all of a sudden. So then, yeah, MIT just lost ground and without any real recruiting power. And that was the thing. That was the thing. At MIT, we do not have any spots, recruiting spots. Really? Yes, yeah, so that's the whole challenge is for me to get on board, try to attract a bit more interest in a program, well, in MIT plus, you know, the program, but still no guarantee. We coaches at MIT, we have that support system that, well, definitely, you know, give an edge and just way more pool and support. But in the end, the committees are making a decision through the normal cycle. So... It's still very challenging now. And that's why it's a little frustrating for me because I cannot tell to someone who's really good, like a Victor Croix, for example, you know, if he wanted to come to MIT, I think he could have done really well, but I have no spots. I have no guarantee. So that's a little different. Quickly, you're talking about your ability to help identify a potential recruit from an admissions point of view that then you're guaranteeing their entry. Is that kind of what you're talking about? So I can propose a list, yeah, I can identify, I can propose a list of recruits, but I cannot pick and choose. I, of course, I have a ranking, which is, okay, my best player is going to be my top, you know, number one, two, three, four. And I've got a level of rating if I really wanted this kid or more or less. And with that and with the whole academic portfolio and everything, committees are now making the decision. So I'm competing with people that can offer a spot, a sure thing, and super early. That sometimes I cannot be. But it's fine. You know, it's funny because I know and I see all those names playing now for the Ivy Leagues. And a lot of them reach out to me as well because they don't know. They didn't know the process. And I'm like, man, if you have a spot in an Ivy, it's fine. If you really want to come and give it your chance here at MIT, let's do it. But there's a little give. Yeah, it's not as easy. Yeah. If you had to sort of summarize your experience with involved in college squash, what would you say right now? So I said it, this is so great. I'm so thankful, honestly. Like I said, I didn't know that environment and that universe before, but I find it so rewarding to be able to be part of a student's life for four years, try to shape him, try to mentor him and give him tools to succeed, not only during the four years, but afterwards. I think to have that sort of impact and educating people and kids, that's super, super good. And honestly, we were talking about my vision for MIT. Yeah, we were like six, seven years ago, we were like in the high 30s or nearly 40, top 40. And we finished top 16 last season. And that was our best in more than 25 years. So that was amazing. But I don't know if I can go top 10 or why not? Why not? But that's not really the goal as well. I want to have a good group of kids academically because they have to qualify to do well at MIT. There's no kind of easy way to navigate. You need to be good in sciences and math. So I'm sure, and that's the great thing about it, I'm sure that any candidates, any recruits, they are very successful as well and thriving at MIT. 
unlike at other schools, sometimes people are getting recruited, but then they're fading or they, are, they have a good a hard time, you know, to catch up on the academic side. So I just want the best for them, for the athletes. And I find that to have that sort of impact, college squash here, that's huge. To play for a team, to be part of that family, that's something I love being like a player and then competing in squash, which is a sport where you're alone. Most of the time you're traveling alone, you're on a tour alone. I mean, you're playing for yourself. It's not a team sport. But then I love playing for France and I love playing for my club in Marseille, the leagues. And that's to be able to compete for your team and your institution for four years, you know, see your team every day, you know, it's great. I've said this before, so I'm probably turning into a little bit of a broken record, but my introduction to squash was through team squash. And I'm so fortunate for that because it allowed me to really try and push myself to get better, but it was to get better for the team, you know, and I didn't want to let them down. So going from high school into college and when I started competing by myself, that felt weird to me. I was like, oh, I'm not used to this. So I almost get the opposite experience from a lot of other players out there. But before we close out this section, and I can't wait to get the car talk, but we opened the discussion essentially with the lens of your family and your throughput there and bringing it back to the diversity, equity, and inclusion lens that we're kind of looking at. How are you looking now and towards the future to try and bring that to your team and your future teams? Yeah, so I think it's really tough for me to recruit international people, but there's a lot of talk and trends and initiative on campus to like try to get and hire more people from diverse cultures and diverse origins and stuff. So that's a really like institute initiative, which is great. So I'm hoping that it's gonna also have that effect on the recruiting side. I'm hoping so. So I'm still gonna propose a list of players, but I'm trying to like maybe get players, you know, from a bit more different backgrounds. International for me, it's really hard because that's the way it is. But we have it on the team, like Asian Americans or, you know, white, and we do have those, unfortunately, not enough black players in general. I think there's also an initiative from the CSA to connect with the C program, you know, the yeah, the SDA yeah, program to try to like have more representation as well. So, yeah. In terms of sharing your narrative with your team, like how front and center do you make your history there? Do you just try and lead by example or are you sharing your history? Lead by example and same, yeah. I love the storytelling as well. I think it's more impactful. In France, we were talking about France and the problems with Algerians, you know, of the generation from Americans, Algerians. And that's a big problem with the Muslim in France. We know that. It's a major issue. There's crimes and people getting killed. It's crazy, you know. But the image that I had sometimes with Muslim people, like French Muslim people, I think it's a little wrong too because traveling the world, one of my best friends were Muslim from Egypt, from Malaysia. You know, they were my best friends. And if you listen sometimes to white French people, they hate them. They cannot get along with them or they think they're the problem of the society, of the economics and employment and blah, 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 blah. So it's not easy. Hopefully traveling the world, and I try to open the eyes of my guys on the team too and around me. Traveling the world, you know, you understand that it's not just one way or the other. It's just more subtle, just more subtle. But again, traveling the world just brought me so much. All my friends on tour, as we know, it's a melting pot. 
I mean, there's a big part of me why I really embrace the squash community is because of this diversity and because of this different backgrounds. Like it really, every time you think you know something, you learn something new. I've now managed my expectations of, okay, what else am I going to learn along the way? So. You know, I was sharing hotel rooms a lot with Alistair Walker. He's half English, white, and mom is from Africa. And then with the dreadlocks. So he, yeah, one of my best friends on tour too. Well, I know we could probably keep going on and on. I want to switch gears, pun intended, to your passion of cars. And so at what age did this really develop? Was this like you're five years old and you saw cars and you're like, whoa, what is this? Or... Tell me when cars became such a focus of your life. Yeah, I don't really know why is that, to be honest, but I do have that little passion. I don't know if it, we can call it a passion or a little hobby or something, but that's something that ease my mind, bring me joy, peace, and just something different from the squash course and, you know, the white walls and the red lines. <laughs> I've got a few questions. Let me see if this helps give an orientation. I've got the answer. Okay, okay, go for it. I've got the answer. I think on the island. Like I said, we live normally, like, you know, normally people, like average, we live in the center of my dad's world. But my dad came up one day and picked me up at school in that sporty, it was called a Peugeot GTI. GTI, and it was a sporty, sporty car, very trendy. And that was what really changed, you know, the reputation of the brand, the French brand back in the days. They were doing the rally and as well. So that blew my mind. So it picked me up. I was like, what? And maybe I was I was probably 11, 12 years old. And I remember clearly the fun that he had driving the car and that I had too. It was not crazy, but sometimes little moments, you know, little portion of roads, boom, he was firing <laughs> the beast. And yeah, I grew up with that. Love it. Was that a convertible or a... No, uh, no, but it was a little compact, but like rally style. And I just love it. I think since that day, I keep cultivating about cars, trying to know different brands, just different styles. And I did, yeah, lose some money on that passion as well. Yeah. I'm curious, if you had to describe your driving style, how would you describe it? I'm pretty calm, cool, calm. But I'm energetic as well. So I like the energy. I like the boost. I like to be peppy. So it has to go. They need to give me joy in the acceleration. Like I said, I love the moment. I love enjoying and take the most out of it. So it has to bring me emotions. And for me, driving is very emotional. It has to uh, bring me joy and sound, power, vibration, stuff like that. I like it. This feels like I probably know the answer, but let me just ask. So Formula One or NASCAR? Okay. You're getting to the racing thing. I'm not too much into that, unfortunately. Okay. But I do appreciate those guys. I'd say more Formula One, especially since on Netflix, I had to watch the inside of the Formula One world. That was amazing. But coming back to the money that I spent on cars, it was more the little stories on magazines. Honestly, I would travel the world and go on tour and go to all those countries and sometimes traveling with my friends or seeing my friends on tour. And they were like, oh my gosh, how many car magazines do you have again? And I was nonstop. Remember back in the days, you had no internet, very, very limited internet. Then on TV, countries where you would go, sometimes I would not understand or just there was nothing on TV. So for me, that was my thing. And yeah. 
if you had, I'm going to give you a scenario here. You have a garage. It has three cars and money is no issue. What three cars are in your garage? Yeah, I've got three cars that I really like. Okay, well, again, let's see, let's see what you got now, but then also money is not an issue. Now, okay, my wife's car, but I picked the car for her. <laughs> it's a family car. It's an SUV. It's a Dodge Durango. She didn't know, of course, but I picked it up. It's SRT model, which means the model is like a Hemi engine V8, and it's a 6.4 liter, so big growl, big sound. And the funny thing is that she's driving the car most of the time. And whenever she goes on gas station or stopping somewhere, some big guys are like coming next to her and like, oh, give me some revs, give me some revs. And that's so funny. She doesn't really know. And so that's a good one. You know, a big SUV, nearly 500 horsepower. That's nice. I've got the Shelby. So a Shelby GT350. And this car is four years old. And as a French guy, as a European guy, for me, that was an exotic car that grew up in France. It was not necessarily a Ferrari, but it was, for me, it was a Shelby for some reason. So I did buy that car four years ago, still in love with it. And it's not a winter car, of course. And especially after watching that video, you know, Ford against Ferrari, I was so, so happy to have made a decision as well, you know, to acquire like a Shelby, because that's a whole history behind it. This is the whole thing. And then my winter car is like all-wheel drive, but it's still a Mercedes EMG. So it's still with good power as well. So I love the sound and I love, in general, sound and emotions. Yeah. That certainly gives a lot of insight into what you love. But is there any one, like, again, money's no issue. What would you... I love Lamborghinis. I think now, yeah, I think I love more Lamborghinis than Ferrari. What is the difference? Because to a lot of people, they can't distinguish. So what would be... Lamborghini is a bit more muscular. Okay, Ferrari is more stylish, elegant, very powerful, smooth. An icon, that's an icon. But Lamborghini is kind of a, the brother, you know, the wild one. And just a more brutish, just more brutal and more raw. The style is a bit more aggressive. So that's what I like. And then I would say Corvette. I love Corvette. <laughs> Maybe one day, yeah. Corvette. As another dream car, I think that's it. I'm not going to go Aston Martin or stuff like that. So I keep myself pretty simple. Yeah. And what is your take then? And I think I know the answer, but I'd be curious. With the new trend of electric cars, it doesn't have the sound. So I wonder yeah. how you feel about that. No, no, I feel that at one point I'm going to need to think more about the earth and pollution as well. So that's a good point. And, you know, electric cars, Teslas are amazing cars. But I'm thinking about one in particular. It's going to be the next Ford Mustang, but electric. And it's an SUV, and it is electric. So it's called the Mach-E. And why not that one? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. What would be, if you were going to take like a Sunday afternoon drive, and you could have your car of choice and your road of choice, where would that be in the world and what car? When I lived in Marseille, that was amazing because first of all you had no real winter so no worries about snow or winter tires or stuff like that so you could get a car driving all year round but over there on the coast or la Côte d'azur or you know in the countryside oh my god that's you have the best roads and you know the tour de france of course you know they have a lot of races around there in the mountains in altitude so that's l'alpe d'huez 
you have like very symbolic and mythic like races down there and roads are incredible. So that would be that. And uh, that would be with, I think, a convertible. I don't know which one, but... Uh, yeah. Convertible Shelby, maybe? Convertible Shelby. Here you go. <laughs> Before we switch gears into our quickfire section, I often leave a little bit of space for any future plans. And I know it's kind of hard to imagine because you are so dedicated to MIT and its success, but you also have a long career ahead of you. And so is there anything on the horizon? No, not really, because I love it here. What I can say is that I don't think things are going to change in the next uh, at least 10 years, to be honest with you. So I don't know. What about beyond 10 years or 20 years? I like the U.S. first of all, I decided to come here with my family to raise my kids here in that system. So I do like it. I like Boston because it reminds me of Europe a little bit and it's not too extreme, extreme. I like that balance too. Boston is great for the culture. We're talking about the culture. I think it's pretty diverse with all the students around and all the big university and campuses. You have the feel of just melting pot. And I love that with all those, like I said, big university, well, Harvard, MIT, uh, Tufts, and Northeastern, and, and there's a lot of them. Big college town. Big, big, big. So I, I like that energy. Honestly, I like that. My kids are great here. They are well integrated, well established. I mean, English is not a problem for them anymore. They have friends, they have a life here. So everything is kind of safe and great safe. MIT is working well, just got promoted to be an assistant professor as well last summer because I teach P physical education as well as coaching the team. So I'm kind of a faculty now, which is good. That's exciting. Yeah, so that's a start. So after that, after being assistant, the next one is associate professor slash coach and slash senior coach. So there's always that. How long until we're calling you Dr. Linku? <laughs> well, you can call me Professor Linku. <laughs> okay, we'll start with Professor. Honestly, coming from a tiny island from Union, and when I think back, my grandparents just flew and have to leave China, and my dad coming from south of France, ended up in the island. And for me, I mean, traveling north, 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 and end up here in the most amazing, you know, places like MIT to be in that excellent world. It's amazing. I think it's pretty amazing. So at the moment, no real plans. Come back. I love my teaching with the team. I love my private lessons, the camps too. I love connecting with a lot of different students, uh, population, clients. Okay. I have the little ones, you know, six, seven, eight years old. And then I have the more advanced uh, boys, girls. I have the college guys. I have the pros. Ben Amanda. I'm working sometimes with, you know, Mohamed Chambini, Faris Desuki came as well, Grégoire Marche came as well, Victor Coin. I mean, there's a lot of guys that I can interact with. And then the older guys, the masters, they came to me as well. Oh, I'm 75 years old, but I want to win the world masters. I'm like, okay, let's go. So to be able to bring back and to give back. And in return, I have so much, to be honest. I have so much from just giving. I love the setup. I love this setup now. Well, we're going to switch gears into the quick fire section now. And it's broken into two parts. One is about, we talk a little bit about squash because this is on squash radio. And then we ask some other questions to get to know you in a different light. So we'll start off with the squash section. And here, just give kind of like your 90 second take. We're not going to put you on the clock. There's no penalty warnings here, but we'll give different sections of the game. And let's orient this towards what you want to see to improve for the future. So. We'll start off at the professional squash level. What do you want to see improved? How would you help improve it? 
I would love to see, uh, I think in general, just more tournaments for the players. I would love to see a top 100 athlete make a good living from the sport, from the prize money, from sponsorship, men and women. In my times, if you're not in a top 20, there was no way, a top 30. So it's tough out there. And when I imagine and when I compare that to other racket sports, I'm like, man, that's still, we, we're still struggling a little bit. It's the same dedication. That is the same investment that you're doing with your life. And then it's not there yet. You know, the returns are not there yet. Yeah, I'd agree. I don't think that's talked about as much as we do inside the game versus outside. And to kind of just put numbers on that, I mean, people outside the top 50 are maybe making $15,000 a year, maybe 30. And certainly, maybe that doesn't include the support from their federations or that kind of stuff. But these are hard living for the athletes to pursue the best. And it's disproportionately, like many things, at the top. But I agree that I think to help see that support go further down to really give them the opportunity. But it's true in all sports, truth be told. It's true, yeah. And you're right. Some Olympic sports, also sometimes they have even less because there's no prize money. If you're doing uh, gymnastics or stuff like that, how are you going to generate money? What about college squash? And you can help influence this. What do you want to see changed or improved? So, yeah, the initiative is to bring more people from a more diverse, okay, background environment. Yes, GI big time in all institutions. So there's a common initiative there. I think we want to provide as well more help and support in mental health as well, especially now. That it's been a hard time for everyone, all families and students in particular, being online and it's tough for them. So just more support, more enjoyment, more fun, because in the end, that's going to be four years of life. They want to have their experience and skills for the future. I want to see more teams, more programs too. But again, the trend is to cut off programs. So that's tough. After hearing from Brown, the varsity team, Brown and Stanford. GW, yeah. GW, that's tough news. But that's my hope when things are going to get better to grow the sport. Because US squash is doing extremely well in terms of juniors and we have the base. So now at the top to increase, to develop. Yeah. For me and mental health, I think there's an element here. If you think of it as a physical strength, sometimes you need to work on, on building your muscles. But then also if you have inherent things in your body, like a rotator cuff issue, you have to build that up. And so all this for me is geared towards performance. And I agree, not enough is talked about on the mental side. And we're starting to see that from a, how can we exploit our strengths there, but also their mental health days that are really hard for us to get through. And just knowing that there is support out there and it's how to figure out to connect that person to the right support. And it's not one person, it's a whole team that you need, but I agree that that is such an important part these days. Especially, I've seen from my perspective at MIT, those guys in general that are applying, they like the challenges. They like being challenged. And that's what they've been doing all their life since they're a little kid at school, private schools, tutoring, SAT prep, testing. And most of the time, those guys, they were the number one or in the top three of their classes, always, valedictorian, always. And all of a sudden, they're, they're fine. They're, they're coming here on campus, and they're not the number one. They're not the best one anymore. That's tough for them. That level of stress to having to cope with the rest of it. And it's an identity shift. So that could be sometimes, yeah, with my guys, I need to really pay attention. And, you know, it's a little stressful. It's overwhelming, homework, research, and everything. 
So I'm really trying to understand and being just a better supporter and coach, mentor in that way too. And that some of them tend to cover so much on tap. They want to learn so much because it's so exciting and so innovative and stuff. And they cannot. It's just too much. Now, desired plans for the sport. If we could forecast in 10 years for the sport, what would you think we should be aiming for? It's tough to see clubs disappearing and closing and shutting down. That really breaks my heart. Even in the U.S., some clubs are now shutting down because of COVID and, oh, man. So, I don't know. I'm, I'm hoping to reverse that and to get just more people playing the game and sharing and enjoying the game. I think it's one of the well, best sports out there. I mean, I think your father is right on the money in terms of using sport. And I believe this, that sport can help make a difference in the world. You said it earlier that it helps not only physically, but also I think mentally. And it really can help break down those barriers of acceptance. So, I mean, that's really why I've stayed involved in the sport. And I think you're a prime example of that. Yeah, I believe in yeah, sport is everything. Sport is for anyone, really. And I try to keep healthy myself, try to go for a run, a couple of runs a week, just to like be mentally also refreshed and regenerated. So it is, yeah, socially so important to stay engaged. Well, we're going to switch into the second portion of the quick fire, and this is where we get to know you. And I'm, I'm always excited to ask these questions because you and I have known each other probably, gosh, 15 years, 17 years at this point. And I'm always thankful because you indulge my terrible French. And anyway, I can't wait to ask some of these questions. And if they go nowhere, it's on me. But start off with the place of, do you have a favorite movie or documentary? I used to love um, Brave Heart was one of them. Actually, now that you mention it, it was my French teacher. I was in New York and it must have been in junior high. We're trying to get our teachers to talk about anything but the classroom. And we figured out, just ask her about Braveheart. And she would spend 20 minutes talking about it. So yeah, that movie was a great movie. Yeah, so that was a great movie. And then it's funny because I was doing something for my little boy, you know, like I had to read a book for his class. And it was on Michael Jordan, the story about how he became so good. A little story, you know, for kids. I was thought back and I was like, oh, that's funny because I was looking at the Jordan when I was 13, 14, 15 from Reunion Island. I would try to watch the matches late at night. And I remember dreaming about NBA basketball, all those guys, the Lakers, all those big champions in the U.S. So maybe that dream of coming to America started maybe a little bit there, you know, to be inspired by those champions anyway. <laughs> now, the next question is what gets you fired up? And this can be something that's either negative or positive and in squash world or outside of squash world. So what gets Terry Linku fired up? Okay, I think, yeah, when people are mean in general, I dislike that. And when people are freely just saying bad stuff or have a critical mind and always say negative things and always complaining, that I don't really like. I did pretty well in matches, like squash specifics, when people were talking to me in between games, for example or enjoying the games, or being a little aggressive and arrogant. Hmm. I learned to cope with that because at the beginning I was just eh, too shy, but then that would get me. So you would channel that? Yes, I would channel that in a good way because I was always like a cold blood, someone very controlled. I would put all that energy in, in the ball, in the ball, always in the ball, and not myself, not showing anything. Yeah. And same for in my career, people saying, oh, even from people from the association, from the French Federation, they were like, 
oh, you're staying really in Ireland. You never want to join a French club when you were 14, 15. You decided to stay on the island. So you would never do well. You would never catch up with the best juniors here. I'm like, what? Okay. Honestly, reading that on magazines and stuff. That was fuel. Oh, that was a big fuel. That was a big fuel. And same thing along the way. There was always preferences. The federation, they had their names, the players. And I was kind of always the one that's okay. I'm going to show you guys. So that was the thinking. Yeah. I like it. Next question is, what brings you disproportionate happiness? And the caveat here is I think our family, our friends, our children, our pets, really, I mean, that's part of what life is about. So is there something else that brings you disproportionate happiness? And it can be a thing or an activity. So I think spending time, yeah, spending time with the kids when they are in a good mood and when they can talk to each other, that's amazing. When you have the special magical moments, okay? With my little one who's seven years old, it's a treat, it's amazing. Driving is one that brings me a lot of happiness. Food is another one. Not necessarily like drinking stuff, but the good food, the good restaurant with my wife or with friends. Do you have favorite cuisine if you're going out and you could say Saturday night's going to be this? What cuisine would you aim towards? At the moment, so here now it's limited, but typically we love Asian food in general. So it could be Thai food or Japanese sushi, stuff like that, or Chinese. That we love. Yeah, that we love. But Indian food as well. We love a good burger, of course, pizza, of course. <laughs> and a little... Uh, Glass of red wine sometimes. All right. The next scenario is, are you familiar with TED Talks? A little bit. So basically, the scenario is you have to give a TED Talk. However, it can't be something that you're widely known for. So I know we've kind of talked about a few things that might prohibit you from giving the speech you want. But another way of looking at this is what would you go spend time exploring and then try and share? So what would be the TED Talk that you would give? It's a tough one. Another way to kind of look at this is what is something you've always been curious about but haven't had time to explore i think i would have loved to read more in general to have the love of reading and i would love to find more time or give myself more time to just read books or maybe explore even more but i don't know if you can the, the counts yeah for sure i mean with the lifestyle that we have now and the kind of the little craziness and making a living and lessons and doing this and that. It's tough for me to really find the time, the peaceful time, the downtime to enjoy like reading and learning even more. And I think that's something I would love to make it happen a bit more. Well, that sort of segues very nicely into our closing question here, which is what books or podcasts would you recommend to people? Because of the DEI movement well honestly i had three books you know <laughs> my wife bought me three books and that's the problem as well at the moment i haven't really found the time so it's more about podcast yeah so now it's more practical for me when i drive here or there or when i have less of time i think podcast is better so all different sort of Your favorite podcasts that you've listened to either shows or episodes or mainly i've got links from my committees you know they're sending me links we have a group chat, so I just click. I don't have anything like a special one, but anything to have to deal with typically diversity and all those topics. We have unconscious biases and then microaggression, you know, all those cultural appropriation, white and black. and blah, blah. So that's what I'm listening at the moment. What about a book that really stands out that just 
inspired you or that you love, if you're going to give a gift to someone, you say, hey, we're all tight on time, but read this book because I loved it. What would that book be? So in French, so that's the thing. I remember a book, it was called Le Guerrier de la Lumière. So it was just about an athlete as well and his way to be successful. I used to love a lot of books about Paolo Coelho, and I used to love those books too when I was younger and traveling. Yeah, Paolo Coelho. But yeah, Guerrier de la Lumière is the one. I like it. Well, on that note, thank you so much for your time. I mean, this means a lot to me and hopefully our listeners will enjoy it. And thank you for just sharing your journey and so much of the life that you've experienced that I don't think everyone knows. And for being open and honest about that. And we're fortunate to have you, the sport is fortunate to have you and your family here because I've already, you've made such an impact in eight, nine years and we can't wait for the next generations of squash to be impacted by you. Yes, yes. So it's good to be here. Thank you again for your time today. It means a lot. Take care. Well, thank you so much for your time today and for joining us on Squash Radio. We hope you enjoyed this latest episode. But before you leave, we just have one quick last message. As you know, Squash Radio wants to help tell some of the best stories from Squash World. But in order to do that, we want and welcome your help. Do you know a person or a story that involves squash that is interesting, funny, moved you, you care about, reflects your passion for the sport? Well, share it with us and let's try and get it out there on the air. You can email me at squashradio at gmail.com or reach out to us on social media. Again, thanks for your time and well, until next time, be well and have fun.